think we have to go back deeply into history to understand our present. Specifically, in my mind, the nature of how we have developed our systems of healthcare, public health, and social protection. The idea that we're a shining city on a hill, that we are the beacon for the world and everybody wants to come here. Yes, if you'd like places where dogs eat dogs. Welcome to episode 83 of the Refuse Fascism podcast. This podcast is brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of this show. Refuse Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in this country. In today's episode, I'm really excited to share an interview with Greg Gonzalez discussing his recent Nation article, America as a quote-unquote shining city on a hill, and other myths to die by, which I encourage folks to go and read. One of the goals of this show is for us together, you included, to deepen our engagement and networking with people and social movements in an effort to forge understanding and relationships aimed at preventing the consolidation of fascism. Some think it can be a disservice to use the F word, but five years later, can anyone really say they didn't know this is a movement hell-bent on eliminating the rule of law and democratic and civil rights? And well, folks, that is the defining feature of fascism. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck, even if it doesn't have the same silly-looking bill. We have to question, who is telling us not to say the F word? And why? And most importantly, what is served by refusing to name it and act accordingly? What is strengthened by this continued refusal? So I'm really looking forward to share Greg's insights with you regarding public health and American mythology. But first, let's talk about some continued developments from this week as they relate to the continued fascist threat. We heard opening arguments in the Ku Klux Klan Act case against the organizers of Unite the Right in Charlottesville. Between the racial epithets and threats in the opening statements from the fascists and the brutal footage of the violence, you might think it's an open and shut case, but that is almost incidental to the case. All that these avowed white supremacists have to prove is a lack of evidence that they specifically conspired. It is a deep lesson in the inability, in my opinion, of the U.S. justice system to make even a dent in this fascist onslaught. Meanwhile, in Kenosha, where the facts of the legal case are even clearer against Kyle Rittenhouse, we have a judge hellbent on getting the fascist killer off. A judge whose pretrial decisions and decades-long career attest to the fact that he's most likely jealous that he didn't pull the trigger himself. Speaking of Kyle Rittenhouse and his mother who literally drove him to murder, Representative Madison Cawthorn, a North Carolina Republican representative and Trump loyalist, told an audience, quote, our culture today is trying to completely demasculate all of the young men in our culture. They're trying to demasculate the young men in our country because they don't want people who are going to stand up. All you moms here, the ones who I said are the most vicious in our movement, if you are raising a young man, please raise them to be a monster, end quote. As Chauncey DeVega, writer for Salon, noted in his article covering this, quote, 
Raising monsters for the fascist movement is one of the main goals of today's Republican Party and its quote-unquote family values. Madison Cawthorn isn't the only believer in the big lie and supporter of the right-wing coup attempt of January 6th, gaining political clout. As reported on by CNN, the dozen GOP quote-unquote young guns of the House GOP's most prized recruits for the midterms have perpetuated lethal lies about the 2020 elections, embracing Trump's vicious, deceitful battle cry as they seek to flip the chamber next year. Turning our attention to the fascist initiatives rapidly advancing in state houses across the country. In Texas, we've got State Representative Matt Krause, who's drawn up a list of 850 books on subjects ranging from racism to sexuality that could, quote, make students feel discomfort, end quote. He is demanding that school districts across the state report whether any are in their classrooms or libraries, how many copies, and how much money was spent on them. And in Florida, the University of Florida, a state public university, has barred three faculty members from testifying for plaintiffs in a lawsuit challenging a voting restrictions law that's enthusiastically embraced by Trump protege Governor Ron DeSantis. As reported on by CNN, officials and aides in Secretary of State offices in Arizona and other states targeted by Trump's effort to overturn the election are living in constant terror for their own lives and for their families. There are no budget to monitor these threats or protect them, no systems to fully investigate or back these folks up. After a year of constant threats, including specific ones citing details of violence, these officials and aides are at risk of these threats of violence, only intensifying going into the election. Returning to the January 6th fatal coup attempt and their continued slow coup, we learn from a report in the Washington Post that John Eastman, the Trump lawyer who infamously authored what many are referring to as the coup memo, sent an email to Greg Jacob, a Pence's aide, reading, quote, the siege is because you and your boss did not do what was necessary to allow this to be aired in a public way so that the American people can see for themselves what happened, end quote. This was the email he sent as Pence and Jacob were hunkered down in a quote unquote secure area under armed guard due to the still-raging siege of the Capitol, one that featured gallows and gunned-up pro-Trump zealots calling for Pence's execution. The exchange shows just how far Eastman and other members of Trump's quote-unquote war room team went in their effort to overturn the will of American voters in order to keep Trump in power. It exposes the rifts that formed even before the smoke cleared and Trump supporters were still milling about the Capitol building with their Confederate flags. Hunter Walker at Rolling Stone detailed how two of those insurrectionists are communicating with House investigators on the January 6th commission, expected to testify to close communication between insurrection organizers and GOP senators and representatives to coordinate January 6th siege on the Capitol, promises of a quote-unquote blanket pardon from the Oval Office, and much more. Meanwhile, Sarah Mims at BuzzFeed reported how at least 12 participants in the January 6th coup attempt, will be running for office on the Republican ticket this Tuesday, less than a year after trying to overturn the last election. The candidates include state legislators running for re-election, as well as local officials and candidates seeking state house seats. And lastly, Tucker Carlson shared the trailer in his, you know, Halloween gift to the world, a truly horrific and sickening quote-unquote documentary 
a high production value, turbocharged, deadly delusional whitewashing of the attempted deadly fascist coup as a false flag operation. This will be released tomorrow on Fox Nation, which is Fox's streaming service. We are continuing over 18 months since the start of the pandemic to have hordes of people living and dying with this morally sick and the actual sickening spread of the virus in their refusal to vaccinate. Just look at the protests of the NYPD and NYFD against vaccine mandates, declaring their right to be an asshole, trumping your right to live, especially if you're a person of color. As Andy Z, co-initiator of Refuse Fascism and host of the RNL show on YouTube, said in a program we held on COVID last December in regards to the fascist belief system that it is, quote, buttressed by twin pillars of American chauvinism that refuses to look at the history and present day reality of the U.S., which has put this country in vampire position of sucking the lifeblood of the rest of the world, end quote. He went on to say that, Quote, buttressing this is an epistemology in which facts are subordinated to their desire to benefit themselves and take revenge upon those whom they believe stand in their way of their further gorging, end quote. And one of the things that I continue to appreciate about Andy's presentation almost a year later is his challenge for us to also look at the epistemology of progressives who were outraged at Trump, Pence, and still refuse to acknowledge it as a fascist regime and to act against it in the only way it could truly be defeated, through sustained nonviolent protest. He said about these liberals and progressives something I think is essential, that they, quote, may be made uncomfortable by confronting the reality that their complacency and putting their faith in the institutions and normal political processes, particularly the Democratic Party, is also based on the reality of living atop the food chain of capitalism, imperialism, end quote. You can listen to the program from last December, COVID, a case study with life and death stakes, science, epistemology, conspiracy, and fascism, a discussion that features doctor, historian, and others by checking out episode 34 of our podcast. But now it's with great excitement that I share my conversation with Greg Gonzalez. From the beginning of the pandemic, and as a hallmark of the growing fascism, which we are confronting even before this, we have been confronted with a wholesale demonization of any form of expertise and science itself. When the value of objective truth and reasoning are desecrated, we are left with the value of brute force, money, and power. And not just individuals, but whole sections of society are taken in by unbelievable lies. In a moment where the only way to ignore the vast amounts of death and extreme suffering is to cover your eyes and plug your ears, we have people wearing their vaccine refusal and mask refusal as a badge of honor. The willful violence and terror of continuing to spread this disease is no less real for its buffoonishness. It is a form, in my opinion, of white rage. It's in this moment where I'm really excited to talk to Greg Gonzalez, who is a national public health correspondent for the nation, is co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership and assistant professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. Not only is he all these things, but his experience and work with ACT UP is exactly what people need to be learning from now. I've been reading Greg's work for a while and his recent piece on the role that American exceptionalism and American mythology play in hamstringing collective response to a pandemic really, really got my attention. And so I'm really excited to welcome Greg. Thanks for joining us, Greg. Thanks for having me. 
So I wanted to start with something that you wrote in your piece for The Nation that I believe was a presentation that you gave originally. Mm -hmm. Um, The article for those listening is America as a shining city on a hill and other myths to die by. And it will be in the show notes. And in it, Greg wrote, perhaps it's time to put myths aside, to face the world we actually live in, not the world we aspire to. There is a task before us the work of undigging, digging out of our history, not to leave it behind, but to excavate it, display it for what it is, to learn its lessons and recognize how it can be deadlier than any virus. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us about what do you think we need to be excavating in particular? What part of our history needs to be fully confronted? I think we have to to go back deeply into history to understand our present. And specifically in my mind, the nature of how we have developed our systems of healthcare, public health, and social protection. Janine Interlandi, who's an editorial writer, wrote a piece in the New York Times 1619 issue, which said, um, why doesn't the U.S. have national healthcare? It has everything to do with race. And that piece, you know, published before the pandemic, um, had a profound influence on, on me because it started to tell pieces of history that appear in my nation article that I had no idea even happened. The smallpox epidemic after the Civil War, which basically got written out of history, you know, was in there. And she talks about how at the turn of the Civil War, turning a blind eye to the to the smallpox epidemic was about a set of theories of Black extinction, that there were people who were inferior, who didn't deserve our help. And even if they did, they were constitutionally unable to survive in the, in the modern world. And the idea that providing health care, providing services to, to freed slaves was not an investment that needed to be made. She also talks in that piece about a woman physician, Rebecca Crumpler, who said every disease has a diagnosis and has an underlying pathology. And um, Rebecca Crumpler basically says, you know, we have to excavate those causes. What's happening in the American South and other places that she worked needs to be subject to scrutiny to understand what's going on. Every affliction has a cause. And so my friend Amy Kipchinski from the law school here at Yale and I started writing about the epidemic in Boston Review last uh, year. We, We were confronting two sort of streams of American history that really got us into the hole we were in last last year. We didn't have to end up on the shores of this sort of great catastrophe that we did in 2020 and 2021. And a lot of that history is tied to our history of white supremacy. And that history is tied to sort of capitalism over the centuries, but also sort of neoliberalism in its, its sort of more contemporary form, which left us basically with a fragmented uh, healthcare system, which really has two classes of people, people who can pay for the care they need and get the best services, and then people who are either uninsured or underinsured or rely on a public system that isn't necessarily the best in the world. And then I think the, the sort of absolute disgrace of, of the public health infrastructure in the U.S., which again, is a sense of ambivalence that public health is community health, public health is something for others, which means we spend three cents for every dollar we spend on healthcare on public health, and then sort of neoliberalism, which drove everything to profit, right? If you can't make money on it, what good is it? Um, and so we have a top-heavy healthcare system, which is about specialty care, not primary care, not community care. And then you have a pandemic that shows up and takes advantage of all three of those sort of deficiencies in American society and culture. Thanks for that. I was reading The Lancet recently, and they wrote something that really, I thought, connected with what you were talking about at the end of of what you were just saying. They wrote, U.S. policy continues to frame the pandemic largely as a matter of individual responsibility to the detriment of public health. As public health professionals and advocates, we call for a renewed commitment to core public health principles of collective responsibility, health equity, and human rights. 
public health implicates government obligations to realize the health of populations, focusing on, quote, what we as a society do collectively to assure the conditions for people to be healthy, end quote. Securing public health does not merely reflect the health of many individual persons, rather a collective public good that is greater than the sum of its parts. And I thought that echoed a lot of what you were saying in terms of the intersection of both the history of the apartheid medical system in the society and capitalism. And I was wondering what your thoughts on that were. Well, you should read The Lancet more often because Richard Horton, who's the editor-in-chief, wrote a piece, I think, last October called Offline COVID-19, A Crisis in Power, and said the struggle for health is a struggle for human dignity, liberty, and equity, but we must also meet our obligation to question power and its effects on truth and truth and its effects on power. One important strand of public health is the struggle against objection. So, you know, straight out of the political playbook that probably you and I could agree on. And so Ed Young from the um, Atlantic wrote a piece two weeks ago about public health roots in campaigning for social reforms and talks about how at some point medicine captured public health and made it into a technocratic enterprise. And public health was, was trying to ape and mimic medicine, which is all about healing us as individuals. Public health has the word in the title. It's about the polis. It's about the public. It's about what we owe to each other, how we keep each other safe. And, you know, it, it was amazing to watch the sort of solidarity that happened at the beginning of the pandemic um, in terms of mutual aid and all these sort of ways in which we tried to stay at home if we could and could afford it to protect each other and protect our families. But we left a lot of people out in the cold. The frontline workers, not just healthcare workers, but grocery store workers, Amazon workers, meatpacking plant employees, people who work in prisons and jails, people who are, who are locked up in prisons and jails. And in a, in a weird sense, in 2020, with the sort of absolute capitulation of the Trump administration on the virus, we were alone against the virus, as my friend Amy and I wrote in the Boston Review. And the idea was that, you know, we had to do this together. We had to band together to keep ourselves safe. But it became almost a mantra as if the sort of capitulation of the Trump administration, we're not going to do anything if we're going to do something, we're going to do it badly, became sort of a creed for the Republican Party in, in mm. its worst form and saying, we didn't even have the obligation to get ourselves vaccinated, uh, wear masks, and even things that are long settled, like childhood vaccination. None of us, including every Republican governor, could go to school without a measles, mumps, and a vaccine. Now they're talking about undermining childhood vaccination mandate. I, I grew up in the Reagan era. That's how I was formed. And Thatcher and Reagan were, were really about the individual. There's no such thing as community, about the attacks on welfare queens. And you know, th there was no sort of form of social solidarity. I thought that was pretty bad. What's happening today is sort of all of that on steroids, even to the extent that people are willing to let their constituents die to um, hang on to a political ideology. I mean, I wrote another article in The Nation about the sort of rise in COVID infections in, in the early fall in the southern states, this is all tied to the history we were talking about. We were willing to let the smallpox epidemic disappear from history, to ignore it when it was happening in, in the post-Civil War era. And we were willing to ignore it, ignore the COVID pandemic as it raced through the South because there were deeply entrenched economic and social ideologies that we were more beholden to than to our obligation to our fellow human beings. That's the sort of the idea that we're a shining city on a hill, that we are the beacon for the world and everybody wants to come here. Yes, if you'd like places where dogs eat dogs. It's extremely heavy thinking about how, you know, on the one side, when the pandemic, we were first really aware and, and in it, I was struck by like how, how genocidal it seemed. And like, I knew with the Trump regime in power that there was not going to be any rush to the prisons, to the detention centers that they packed our migrant siblings in, or to the communities that were being ravaged the most, which were bl that Black people, they would easily kill off. 
and not care. And I remember being like deeply, deeply struck by the mass dehumanization that like if people need to be disposed, so be it. Keep the economy running. I remember I very inspired by ACT UP and was part with my husband and some friends and starting the dropping body bags at Trump properties. And then I remember there being this shift in noticing that they would kill their own, that all these unvaccinated white folk will also die. And they are Trump supporters. And I I remember being very confused by why those same people who are supportive of Trump were against a vaccine that Trump's played a hand in. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on, on, on that dynamic. Well, look, I mean, if you remember the book, What's the Matter with Kansas, people vote against their interests all the time. And I think sociologists and political scientists have suggested that what the um, Republican Party nowadays offers is status and a tribal belonging. And, you know, Lee Atwater said this in the old days, we can't talk about race anymore, but we can talk about special rights and who's deserving and undeserving. And our people will hear the dog whistle and know that we were basically saying white makes right. And that the threat to you is not from Ron DeSantis or Greg Abbott. It's from your neighbors who, who look different than you, who love different than you or believe different than you. And so, you know, this has been a strong sort of tribal identification and sort of collective brainwashing that puts people in, into just enormous danger for their own families and their friends as they walk into sort of the full force of the epidemic in communities that are under vaccinated and, and refuse to mask. You know, for all the ones that have these deathbed conversions, knowing if I know what I know now, well, you know, the point is, is that, you know, for all the ones that we, we hear those stories, that there are plenty who are just dying quietly um, and still believing what they were told on Fox News the, the night before they went into the hospital. So we have a whole culture that's been built up over the past, all of my adult life, basically, that's pushed us away from each other, from any collective responsibility to our brothers and sisters. Tony Judd wrote a book in 2010 before he died of ALS called Ill Fears the Land and says, you know, we've made a virtue out of selfishness, you know, in the, over the past 40 years, talking really of the Reagan Thatcher era and after it. And that we need to learn the important political questions again, is, is a law or a policy good or is it just will it help people? We have to learn those questions again, he says in this book. But, you know, so th- what's been happening in the U.S. has been sort of remarked upon way before the COVID pandemic. Um, but we've never been able to politically organize to get us out of this sort of hellscape that, you know, the second decade, third decade of the century is turning into. I spoke, I guess it was this summer with Rajat Ali, and he made a really good point that I found echoed in your nation piece. And I'd like to hear more on what you think of this. In talking about the Trumpist true believers, he said, quote, if given a choice between renting a room to a person of color or burning down the house, they will choose to burn down the village. They will die for whiteness, end quote. And I was wondering, do you think that's accurate? And where do you see this going from here, especially in relation to like collective, you know, not individual uh, people's decisions, but as a, as a larger group? Well, there's a whole book called Dying of Whiteness, right? And it's, it's about the same phenomenon you're talking about. I'd rather sort of, you know, cling to sort of a white racist identity than um, think that I have anything to do with anybody else whether it's my neighbor or the person down the street or the person across the country from me, if I consider them outside of the fold. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with race. It could, it could do with sexuality, it could do with gender, it can do with class. And so this is the kind of sort of narrow tribalism that the Republican Party has become genius at, but now into a cult-like form and sort of an audio homeo genocide sort of form. It's like we're willing to kill our own and do it in the context of states we preside over just because we've drunk the Kool-Aid in addition to the, the one we've, we're serving out to our constituents. And I think that there's also like, it's coupled with that if we need to sacrifice some for this larger goal, 
so be it. Yeah. You know, I mean, in the piece I read about the American South, I said, you know, you have to break some eggs to make an omelet. Right. And this is exactly what they think. Yeah. I, I, I think that we're, that we're seeing that in Florida and Texas very clearly in the iconic fascist regimes of the past, those that people know. And among many of the most notorious fictional dystopias, the state is all controlling. But in my opinion, part of the cruelty of America is in its contrived neglect. The Nazis would kill you, but given the choice, America would rather let you die. And I think it's part of the contract of the deserving and undeserving, or at least they make it seem that way. We're conditioned to believe that this is somehow better in this moment with the pandemic and global warming and cascading crisis on top of another. I was wondering what your thoughts on where you see this going. Well, it's interesting because there's lots of debates about whether Trump is a proto-fascist or a fascist, because then it goes you know, to the comparisons to, to the worst excess of the 20th century and Hitler and Mussolini and the rest. We can just look at the present and not analogize and realize it's just this horrific dystopian realization of lots of kinds of things, white supremacy, neoliberalism, capitalism. As you said, in many fascist states, the state is all powerful. Here, the state is all powerful uh, only in, in the context of the military, the police and the carceral system. In other forms, the state is completely um, weakened and hobbled so that it provides nothing to many other people. If you're in black and brown community, you may be over-policed, but if you're in a poor Appalachian community, you may have nothing, you have very little contact with any sort of part of the state whatsoever in terms of its ability to help you. And that was part of the game, right? You know, the game is like the state can't do any good for you, um, so you don't need it. Greg into the nine most scariest words in the English language are, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. The whole idea is to demonize government in its certain form and its social responsibilities in, in its idea that it needs to sort of regulate the economy so that we don't have sort of elites stripping the state for its assets. And, you know, we collapse the state into sort of basically a, a policing military infrastructure, but nothing else. And do you see this, this changing? Yeah, you know, my friend Amy Kuczynski and I are trying to figure out if we can write a book and trying to think about how do we move towards the politics of care, right? Which we wrote about in the Boston Review pieces, you know, in 2020, in two springs ago. It's time is all strange now. I keep thinking of it as last, last spring, but it was the spring before. You know, part of leftist thinking over the past several decades is that, you know, we get to the promised land and everything's going to be fine. And that you'll feel the burn and Bernie will be elected and like all our problems be solved. Um, and I voted for Bernie. So I'm not making a criticism, but the point is, is that we have an ongoing struggle to, to make. Um, and, you know, even if we get good elected leaders into place, if even if we had a democratic socialist house of representatives, we're still going to have a struggle to face on an ongoing basis. And the idea is like, you know, there's a famous, um, and I actually quote it in the Nation article, it's not your job to finish the work, it's, but neither are you allowed to neglect it. It's from its old Jewish philosophy and, and religious documents. The point is, is that this, the future is, is building out something that we think is better, not with an idea that we, we're going to get to a point where like we've overthrown the, the Trumpists and the Republican Party and everything's going to be fine and dandy. We're going to always have an ongoing struggle about people who believe in sort of the virtues of selfishness and that they don't have any responsibilities to other people. We have to keep building a society that we want to live in. And it's going to be a struggle we pass on to our children and our grandchildren and not think of it as sort of a thing that we can solve with quote unquote revolution. It ends up making us into sort of strangely utopians, you know, that are that are mirrored in the Republican Party, that all we need to do is sort of get Trump back into the White House or do this or that. And then, you know, we will be free. We're not going to be free ever in sort of the context of sort of our own struggle against our fellow men and women, because we're not always going to think alike. So ACT UP was great. Rise and fell. Did some good things. Francis Fox Pippen writes this history of social movements, the labor movement, the women's movement, all these things. They have these cycles of ebb and flow. How do we sort of sustain the sort of really 
60-year-old struggle since Goldwater that the American right has put together that has been relentless. The right reorganized after Goldwater's defeat and all through my lifetime is basically chalk up victory after victory. And now it's, you know, it's at a level where it's just, you know, they're eating their own. But where is our sort of our infrastructure that could start with the somebody who's born today can wake up in 50 years and said there's been this 50-year campaign to sort of make us into a freer, fairer place. I, I don't see that happening. I see us sort of atomized and working on different issues. I see us, you know, clinging to electoral politics while some people are saying, no, don't even deal with it. It's totally corrupt by money and you can't do anything. At some point, we have to sort of pull everybody together and say, look, I don't know what it is, but we, you know, we are losing badly. Should we have Trump 2.0 or Ron DeSantis or somebody smarter than Trump in the White House turn out the lights and say goodbye? Because I, I don't know what will be unleashed. You know, should they regain control of the Congress and the White House again? It would be really, really spectacularly awful. Yeah, there's so much that I unite with in what you're saying about the deep danger that we face and the do or die moment for humanity. What you're saying gets me at my core about look at the fascists, look at those most detached from reality, from humanity, and how they are able to marshal their force and sense of purpose and remake the world in their image, if you will. And those who are the most decent are the most paralyzed, in my opinion. Um, those who, are, who have a sense of, of humanity, of justice, are, are completely paralyzed. And in my opinion, it does have something to do with seeing the role that they play in a very limited fashion limited to what I see as what people deem the politics of the possible. And while I don't think we can wave a magic wand and create a utopia, I do think that so long, and again, this is my personal opinion, not the opinion of, of everyone in Refuse Fascism, let alone all you listeners, but I do think that so long as there is a system that's based on exploitation and oppression, the way that we relate to each other the way that we treat each other, the way that we see ourselves and what we're out for in the world, all that morality is shaped by the system. And so long as that we're operating based on ruthless accumulation of wealth and capital, I think that does irrevocable harm on all our social relations and the way that, that we treat each other. And I, I do think personally, I do think we need a revolution. I don't think that's something we're going to go out and do tomorrow. I don't think that we're in anywhere near the revolutionary crisis that would need to exist. But I do think that we're at a crossroads right now and radical change is coming. And I think that the danger right now is that it will be a radical change that is further enslaving, a radical change that puts the, the Trumps in power and turns back the clock for anyone that isn't them. And that scares me to my core. But I do think that there is great potential in all the people who came into the streets around George Floyd. I think that there's great potential in all the people that are younger than me, largely it's people that are younger than me that are like, we're not going to have a planet to live on. There's not going to be yeah. a global future. I think that, there, you know, there's certain things that give me hope for people lifting their heads to, to think about what are we doing for the future for humanity. But I do think that so long as we confine ourselves to the politics of the possible, we're going to keep living the politics of monstrosity and accepting things that we shouldn't accept. Again, those are just some of my personal thoughts. But I think when I talked about the history that we started with, we, we were going back further. Like we have like a legacy that started when the first boats landed here from, from, from Europe. We're not just talking about fixing what happened when Reagan was elected president. We're talking about much, much further back into our history. And that's, what this, that's why the people hate the 1619 Project on the right, because it says this is 400 years of, of sort of built-in oppression. And so what are we going to do step by step 
to get us to a better world. And maybe, you know, in a hundred years, we'll be closer to the sort of place that you and I would be happy with. But I want to know what we do now. And part of the work I've been thinking of lately has been around the new politics of care and how that's not just about sort of preparing for the next pandemic, but it's actually honoring Black lives, which were in jeopardy before the pandemic and not just from police violence. There were tens of thousands of excess deaths among African-Americans due to sort of disparities in health that we've had for decades upon decades. How do we deal with these things from my own field of health? How do we ensure decent education for people, a living wage, paid family, all these things we need to do? How do we get a platform together that we refuse fascism and sort of liberal Democrats, let's put those at the two ends of the spectrum, could be united together to make this happen. I wanted to close out our conversation with turning back to the pandemic that we are still in, in case anybody thought something different. We're still in it. <laughs> um, as someone who works in a school, we are still really in it. Talking with people, you hear the, the next pandemic conversation and people are like, what? And I know that on the one hand, it's like talking about the next pandemic when you're still very much in something can be difficult for people. But I've been thinking about like how asking if we're ready for the next pandemic is like asking if we're ready for the next Trump coup. The great majority are actively refusing to look at what got us here. And most of those people are refusing to take any meaningful action that would come out of that investigation. And I'm wondering, how do you think that right now, people of conscience, what role do we play in there's there's what those empowered you to prepare for a next pandemic but but what do what do people of conscious what role do we play i wrote somewhere and i can't remember where it is it's just, infectious diseases will always be with us but pandemics epidemics are man-made human-made creations so i think we have total control over what happens in the next pandemic and people of conscience have different spheres in which they can operate in first of all like local public health you know so many people are fleeing local public health because they're being harassed threats of violence. They're paid terribly. Health departments are like, okay, this week we'll do vaccinations because we only have two people, so we can't do testing and vaccination. And restaurant inspections, forget about those. So it's it's about figuring out how to build up local public health. And that means sort of holding mayors and, and city councils to account. And then you go up the chain because we need to rebuild public health from the ground up. It's just been deeply underinvested in, um, and we need to think of that. But you know, health isn't just sort of the public health infrastructure. In public health schools, you learn about the social determinants of health. And so it's education, taxation, policing, all have something to do with health. And again, these are all things that you can control locally. You know, you don't think the school board or the police accountability board is important, or you may think it's important, but it's not health related. It's all health related. So there's a play called Angels in America about the AIDS epidemic that Tony Kushner wrote in the, in the 1990s. And at the end of the play, they're all around Bethesda Fountain in New York. And the angel Bethesda, you know, and he tells the story in the play, you know, her foot touched the ground in Jerusalem and a spring flourished and waters were pouring out. And if you dipped your foot in that spring, you were healed from whatever ailed you. At the end of the play, Prior Walters around this statue memorializing the angel Bethesda in Central Park and says, we won't die secret deaths anymore. The world only spins forward. We will be citizens, right? And in a sense, people of conscience need to sort of, they can think about the big thoughts, about the things we've been discussing about like social movements and how the nature of human nature and revolutions. But they could also think about people's sphere of influence. We can change the world. You know, ACT UP showed we can, we can make a difference, but we can make a difference really, really close to home. I do think like there are struggles playing out in terms of access to basic health services and social services and social support in our own communities. And I'm not saying you should be a volunteer and that we're all going to, that mutual aid is the solution, but we can hold our local leaders to account. That is like the bare minimum, but it's also something that like 
oh, I can't go to Washington to go to that protest. You don't have to go to Washington to go to the protest. Walk down the block, go to your city hall, you know, run for elected office, pester your local representatives, because the changes that are happening on the national level are, are all important and great. But public health plays out at the local level. This is the way public health operates in the United States. CDC is a technical advisory body. Governors and mayors dictate sort of the rules of the game in public health. And so people of conscience have a lot of power at the local level to sort of put a counterweight. Think of all the public health powers that are being rolled out, rolled back in state after state, the attacks on public health workers from the reopen Virginia, reopen Michigan crowd and the people who Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott and others are egging on. Be the counterweight, support public health in a very direct way and try to make it a priority for your, your mayoral election. Um, I was reading a piece that a friend of mine wrote about the New York City mayoral elections and about Rikers Island. And he is hell-bent on putting that uh, onto the agenda for the next mayor. You can be in a small town and have things to think about carceral reform. There's all these things you could do at a local level. So like really, I, I think, and I think that's where you start to build power. That's where people can start for like the, from every day they wake up. Thank you so much, Greg, for taking the time to chat with us. And if you're a listener and you want to read the article that we talked about, it's going to be in the show notes along with a link to where you can follow Greg on Twitter. And is there any other works or places people that can read you or things you want to direct people to? I just wanted to give you an opportunity to share that. Yeah. Amy Kopchinski and I wrote in the Boston Review last spring. All those essays are online, Alone Against the Virus markets versus lives and a new policy of care, the nation articles as well. We were talking about myths to die by. I just wanted to let your, your listeners know that it was part of the Alan Berkman lecture at Columbia University. And Alan Berkman was a physician who spent time in jail because he was a physician who treated some of the people who were involved in the Brinks robbery uh, in the radical protests in the 1970s. And you know, Alan um, was deeply committed progressive physician activist. And if you don't know a lot about his life, there's a biography of Alan that people can read and it's linked to in the, at the bottom of the Nation article. Thanks again so much for sharing your expertise and perspective. I know that I learned a lot and I'm sure my listeners did as well. Thanks. The fascist, unrelenting, 50-year-long game plan push has been possible, in my opinion, not because they were smarter or more strategic. It's because their methods and goals aligned with the system we live under and the way that such a system is able to confront the crises they face today, which tells us two things. One, we need to break our resistance to fascism out of the confines, norms, institutions, and limits of the system. And two, again, my opinion, not that of everyone in refused fascism or necessarily yours. Ultimately, we need to overthrow this system. I've heard the line of, let's start a long-term strategy that starts at school boards and local offices and works our way up. For the 20 years I've been involved in this struggle, and my older comrades have heard it for much longer. But the fact is, we are at a moment where we can't screw around with that much longer. Because if we kick off our doomed 50-year strategy now, it'll be difficult to take the time to assess its failure underwater between the Category 7 hurricanes. But it's not only global warming. All of this is in relation to crises that are bigger than mere public opinion. Crises rooted in how our society is structured at its most basic level. All just as real as global warming, if not always as obvious. This is not a reason to give up, but to look deeper into how we can truly get free and break free of the constraints of respectable dissent. For more on where I get my understanding of this in particular, I encourage folks to tune in to the RNL show on YouTube each Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow, 
Oral arguments will be heard at the Supreme Court in a case challenging Texas's abortion ban. Be part of making noise for abortion rights and access in Texas and across the U.S. Loud and proud. Abortion on demand and without apology. In the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. You can join protests 9 a.m. tomorrow, Monday, outside the Supreme Court of the United States Building in D.C. Visit the Center for Reproductive Rights for more information. The Women's March has announced protests everywhere 6 p.m. at your local courthouse and encourages people to wear green. If you're going out, tag us in your photos and video at Refuse Fascism on social media. Let us know what your signs are saying, what people are saying. We want to hear from you. Thanks for listening to Refuse Fascism. As I just said, I want to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, ideas for topics, or guests, or lend a skill. Tweet me at Sam B. Goldman, or drop me a line at Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org. Leave me a voicemail by calling 917-426-7582. You can also record a voice message by going to anchor.fm forward slash refuse dash fascism and clicking the button there. You might even hear yourself on a future episode. And if you want to support the show, it's simple. Show us some love by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And follow, subscribe, so you never miss an episode. To help us reach more listeners, donate to help us place podcast ads. You can give by hitting the donate button at refusefascism.org or Venmo refuse-fascism. Cash app, refuse fascism. Thanks to Coco Das, Lena Thorne, Richie Marini, and Mark Tinkleman for helping produce the show. Thanks to incredible volunteers, we have transcripts available for each episode, so be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox each week. We'll be back next Sunday with an interview with Ellie Honey discussing attacks on the rule of law. Until then, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America.